Zechariah chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Let us pray. O oh Lord of heaven, we are so very thankful that you loved us enough to not leave us as we were, dead in our trespasses and sins. As you look down from heaven, you determined that nothing short of a miracle would save us. Nothing short of your own beloved son dying for us would be sufficient. O oh Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are willing to walk that difficult road of sacrifice for us. As you entered Jerusalem to fulfill the Father's will on our behalf, the throng celebrated you, exclaiming, Hosanna, Lord, save us. Fill us this morning with a sense of that same celebration, proclaiming with them that you are the conquering King of kings and Lord of lords. Prepare our hearts this week to celebrate the incredible gift of your death burial, and resurrection on our behalf. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Chris. Great prayer, brother. Oh, I feel so energized by that reading and prayer. Um, that passage we just read is amazing. I just felt electrical volts of something running through me when, when we were reading it in both services because it is really the story of Jesus's gospel. And I, as I was looking at it this last week, I was looking at that passage, which uh, Matthew and Mark and, and Luke and John, they all just quote some snippet of it. I was looking at it and saying, man, it's all right there. It's just amazing. We're going to unpack that today. That's going to be our sermon outline. If you want to follow along, you can track with me. Uh, there's an outline in your bulletin. I encourage you actually to do that. Fill in some blanks that will help you remember some stuff. Now, traveling from Jerusalem or Jericho to Jerusalem for Jesus and his disciples involved a really winding and difficult 17-mile hike. Now, on a map, when you look at it, geographically, they're moving southward, right? So they're moving from the north to the south. But topographically, they're actually moving upward. Uh, because they're going up in elevation. So they're going from uh, Jericho to Jerusalem, which is uh, essentially 3,000 feet above sea level. That's why all the Gospels say they went up to Jerusalem, if you ever wanted to know that. And, uh, and so the road passes a rocky, craggy canyon along narrow paths. And that road would have passed through the arid land, the difficult terrain of the Judean desert. This is the place when Jesus began his ministry where he was fasting and praying for 40 days, 40 nights, and he was out there uh, being tempted by the devil. And he won this incredible victory over Satan, but the gist of the temptation was this. I'm offering you authority and power. That's what Luke, Luke's version says. I'm offering you authority and power here. And Jesus refused counterfeit authority and power over the nations. And now here he is on his last trip up from Jericho to Jerusalem on this windy trail, and he's going to be coronated, inaugurated as God's king over the nations. 
because he knows that to get the crown, he must go through the cross. And so here, now Jesus is passing that very place. He's passing that very place where he won this victory over the devil by choosing God's path for him. And so they ascend several ridges and finally arriving at the Mount of Olives, they look down at the Kidron Valley and across from it is Jerusalem and God's king from the mount comes riding into town. Isaiah 52, 7 prophesied this. Isaiah said, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good news and glad tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. What's the good news? That your God reigns. And your God has arrived to proclaim his rule and his reign. And from the Mount of Olives, Jesus goes and stays at Bethany, and then he's greeted with praise. Matthew picks up the story here in Matthew 21, 1 through 10. This is when they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two disciples telling them, go into the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt. Untie them and bring them to me. Now, if anyone says anything to you, say to them, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Now, so what's going on here is that there are a bunch of donkey kiosks around town. <laughs> so, <laughs> there are. Uh, and so this isn't like magic or a miracle or anything like that. It's just these things are all over there. The first century equivalent to like Uber, <laughs> right? It's like donkey Uber. And he says, just explain to them the master needs it. And they got to be like, okay. And so um, if anyone says anything to you, he says, say the Lord needs them. And this uh, took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. The passage we just read says, tell daughter Zion, see, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And the disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. And then they brought the donkey on the colt. And then they laid their clothes on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd uh, uh, spread their clothes on the road, and others were cutting branches from palm trees down and spreading them on the road. And then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who shout, uh, followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when he entered Jerusalem, the, the whole city was in an uproar, saying, who is this? Like the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Nobody really, really knows who he is and what he's there to do yet. So I want to talk to you about three things today relative to the kingdom of Jesus. Number one, how our king arrives. And two, how our king reigns. And three, how we can know this king. Let's talk about number one. How our king comes. How does he arrive? Well, he comes humbly. And he comes humbly as God's sacrificial lamb. He comes humbly and lowly as God's sacrificial lamb. Again, Zechariah 9, 9 says, See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious. How is he in the right? How is he victorious? He's in the right and he's victorious because he knows that he's going to be uh, dying for the sins of humanity on the cross. This word lowly is the Hebrew word ani. Now, they have a town named after this word. It's called Beit Ani. The word Beit means house. The word Ani means lowly, humble, modest. It means uh, um, poor. 
And so Jesus goes from here and stays in Bethany or Bethany at the home of Eleazar, a man he had risen from the dead, according to John chapter 11 and their family. And so he comes riding in on a donkey. Now these donkeys in Israel are not like the mules in America. Don't have that in your mind. Uh, we see this at uh, like Easter pageants every year. These are like little mini donkeys. In fact, if you could see a person riding on one, you would think to yourself, how in the world is that little donkey holding up that person? And what they do is it's hilarious. It's kind of comical. They just trot along with like a Hasidic rabbi on them or something. And so he's coming on this humble, humble animal into town. So why does the world's rightful king come humbly riding such a lowly animal? Well, he rides into town at least for a couple of reasons. The first one is this. It fulfills an oath made to the tribe of Judah. It fulfills an oath made to Judah and his tribe. In Genesis 49, 10 through 11, on his deathbed, Jacob says to his son Judah and to the tribe that he will, that he will be the, uh, the progenitor of. He says, uh, the scepter will not depart from the tribe of Judah, nor the ruler's rod from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs, and, and the obedience of the nations is his, and he will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. So Jesus is indeed a son of Jacob and from the tribe of Judah, but this is not about, listen, this is not about just checking prophetic boxes. Like, this is not about just checking prophecy boxes. This isn't like prophecy number 16 that just has to be checked off the list. Don't read it that way. This is in the middle of a grand story. A grand story about God who was king and creator. Whose humanity, whose image bearers went astray. And then God restoring his sovereign reign and his sovereign rule by saving and winning these image bearers who have fallen into rebellion in his realm. And now he saves them. And so this is what this story is about. And he will be the king and all the nations will be given to him. So it does fulfill this prophecy, but that prophecy appears in a larger story, a larger program. And second, it models the servant leadership of Jesus for the disciples. The picture of Jesus riding into his kingdom on this humble animal in humble fashion is exactly the opposite of the pompous, festooned Caesar who does not come to Rome that way. When Caesar, when Julius Caesar returned from defeating the Gauls, when he returned uh, from defeating the Gauls, he was welcomed with such pomp and such tinsel and such fanfare that historians say that it took three days for people to celebrate the spoils of his victory and him parading the spoils of his victory through the streets of Rome. The same will become true for Titus and Vespasian. Titus and Vespasian uh, in 68 to 70 AD will destroy Jerusalem, level it, raise it to the ground, destroy the temple. When they return back to Rome for the celebration with all of their spoils in tow, bringing everything that they have won, the historian, first century historian Josephus says this. He said that the parade is literally indescribable. It is indescribable. But Caesar always comes on the strongest, most powerful white steed you have ever seen. And here's Jesus on this little lowly trotting donkey. And so he comes humbly. And he comes humbly to signal his mission. 
Because his mission is to humble himself, become obedient to God, even to the point of dying on a cross for humanity. But it also shows us the way to live as human beings in God's realm. What does it teach us? It teaches us to live cruciform lives. What does that word mean? I've taught you this before. It means to live a life that is formed in the pattern of God's sacrificial love on the cross. It means to live a life that is formed after the pattern of Jesus giving himself for others. Sacrificially offering himself for others. Jesus teaches this. Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. He says, take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Do you have anxiety in your soul this morning? Jesus comes humbly to fulfill the oath to the tribe of Judah. Jesus is the lamb of God and the lion and the, of the tribe of Judah and, and this kingdom is one of sacrificial love for others. As we follow the Christ, the Messiah of God, who paid the ultimate penalty and price for our sins. He also comes to confront the powers of this age. You better believe that. He comes to confront the powers of this age. Look at Zechariah 9:10a. He says, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. Well, this is bad news if you're Israel in this century. Why are you taking our weapons of war away? We need those. And so the whole prophecy is this. No, no, no. I'm taking them away from everyone. No one gets to have them. No one gets to have their war toys. Understand that this gospel is moving toward its completion, its end. And and the way that it's moving is it's moving toward the end of the story. And in the end of the story, God is going to return. The Messiah is going to come back to the world And he is going to bring all the nations into subjection, into subjugation of his rule. And then he will teach them to make war no more. There are so many passages in the Old Testament and the New Testament that teach this. I couldn't even read them all to you this morning. I'll just read you one. It's Isaiah 2.4. He says, he, the Messiah, will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. and, And they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation anymore nor will they train for war anymore. When Jesus returns, you can read about it in Revelation chapter 19. He does come. What what does John say he sees? He says, I saw heaven open, and there before me was a white horse. And he who was sitting on the horse, his name was Truth and Justice, and he comes to make war with the nations. And what does he do? He brings them under his rule. And what you have to understand is that this story is moving forward. This story is moving toward that moment when Jesus Christ returns. And when he comes back, he's not going to be riding on a little trotting donkey. He's not going to be your sacrificial lamb. He's going to be the coronated king of the universe. And everyone will come under his rule, including the United States of America. Including you and me. And so he comes to confront the powers of this age. He comes to tell the powers of this age, this is not the right way to do it unless I do it. And then he comes announcing his gospel. Look at Zechariah 9, 10, and B. It says he will proclaim peace to the nations. Why do the nations need peace proclaimed to them? Because they need to make peace with their God. 
This is the gospel. This is what Paul talks about. This is when Paul says that God was in the world reconciling the world to himself through the blood of Christ Jesus, through Jesus Christ. God wants to reconcile. That word reconcile means to make peace. It means to make peace between two warring parties. And so when this Messiah comes, he will announce the gospel of peace to the nations. He will say to the nations, come, come. And the nations will have a choice to either rebel or to have faith, to trust him. So all nations are called to be disciples of the king. And it's the proclamation of this message that men and women are called to be reconciled to Christ's kingdom. He's going to proclaim the peace of God in the blood of Christ to the nations. Number two, so how does our king reign? So if this king has been inaugurated and coronated, if he has been inaugurated and coronated, if he has ascended through the clouds of heaven and he now seats or is seated at the power of God, the right hand of the power of God, how specifically does he reign? How does he? First of all, you need to know that his reign has no geographical boundaries and it has no real geopolitical enemies. It doesn't. Zechariah 10c says this, his rule will extend from sea to sea and from river to the ends, uh, from the river to the ends of the earth. What kind of kingdom are we talking about here? What kind of kingdom are we talking about? Well, Pontius Pilate had this same question for Jesus. He asked this same question when he was interrogating Jesus and interviewing him. Well, interview is a, a mild way to put it. But when he was uh, trying Jesus, when Jesus was being tried before him, he asked the same question. Uh, he said, what kind of king are you? I mean, they're saying that you're the king of the Jews. Are you? Are you the king of the Jews? Because if you are, then we've got a problem here. Because if your plan is, to, is for your followers to follow you in revolt to Caesar's kingdom, then we got a problem. And Jesus has to answer him. He says, what, what have you done? And Jesus said in John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. So you're a king then, said Pilate. And Jesus answered, uh, you say that I am. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth, and everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. Well, what is truth? Retorted Pilate. And then Pilate brings him out, and he says to the Sanhedrin, he says, I, I, don't, I don't find any uh, cause for offense in this man. I, I can't find no reason to crucify him. So he knows what the law is. The law is they have to set free one Jewish prisoner. They have to set free one of their prisoners. So who does he put, put before the people? He puts Jesus and he puts Barabbas. Now, Barabbas is not his name. It's his title. Bar means son of. Abba means father. So this man has titled himself the son of the father. Now, we know in the Gospels that he's a brigand. He's a zealot. He's a thief. And he's not just going around stealing bread because he's hungry. Thieves in the first century, they wanted to disrupt the entire Roman economy. So, so, so they would uh, secretly, under their coats, hold these daggers, and they would stab Roman soldiers or Roman citizens and then disappear into the crowds. So this, this man is bad news. And who does the crowd choose? You know the rest of the story. They choose the wrong son of the father. They choose Barabbas. 
They choose the man who represents zealotry, and they choose the man who represents war against Rome. And this leads them then to the destruction of their temple in AD 70 because that whole nation then chooses the path of zealotry and not the path of Christ. And so this is really a shame. And so Jesus tells Pilate that his kingdom is not of this world. He's not here, at least for now, to overthrow your government. Instead, he's here to inaugurate God's heavenly reign. God's heavenly kingdom, which has no geographical limits, it has no boundaries. This kingdom can be planted and grown in the soil of any culture. It can be planted in a communist culture, and it can grow and flourish. Sorry, we just, that's what we do. It can be planted in North Korea, a prison state, a gulag state, and people can become believers in Jesus, and it can grow, and it can flourish. This is just the genius of God pouring out his Holy Spirit on all flesh. What's the genius of that? Is that now, because people, because the Holy Spirit has been poured out on all flesh, now wherever a Christian goes, the kingdom of God is present. The kingdom of God is there, and a church can be planted there, and it can grow, and we can make disciples, and then After we flourish, we become persecuted. We get driven underground. We get driven out of town. We get chased out of the country. And then you know what happens? You know what happens then? Well, those people die. Those bad leaders, they die. And we'll just come back. (laughs) That's what we do. We just wait for you to die. We'll disciple our kids. We'll disciple wherever you chased us into. We'll disciple that region. And then we'll just come back and disciple your people. Because God's kingdom has no geography in that sense. You, there's not like a city or a state or a place where you could say, let's, let's shoot our bombs there. Let's attack that place. No. God's kingdom is in his temple. And his temple are the people on whom the Holy Spirit has now been poured out. So don't worry. Your tyrants will die. Your, tyrants will die. your governments will change hands. And the Christian church will come back. And we'll just evangelize your people. So his king, kingdom is wherever a Christian is. His kingdom is wherever a church is. And next, he reigns over death and hell. Don't miss this one. For heaven's sake, don't miss this one. He reigns over death and hell. Zechariah 9:11 says, "As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit." Pay attention to this language. I'm struck by this language. God is saying, because of the blood of my covenant, I'm going to save you. I'm going to free you. This word waterless pit is one word in Hebrew, and it's the image that is used in the Old Testament for the pit of hell, right? So in Isaiah 14, 15, it's where God refers to Lucifer or Satan's judgment for exalting himself above the heavenly council, for exalting himself and tried to take God's seat Uh, uh, exalted seat at the heavenly council. Uh, This is what God tells him, for you will be brought down to Sheol, to the depths of the pit. That's the same word. You'll be brought down to hell, to the pit. And so there's a very real sense here in Zechariah in which it anticipates the blood of God's covenant, this new covenant in which Jesus is going to hang on that cross. And what is he going to do? Jesus Christ is going to take the world's worst. He is going to take the world's worst. And what's he going to defeat? 
First of all, he's going to defeat that symbol. That's why we hang it around our necks. That's why we put it up and erect it in our churches. Because Jesus Christ is going to defeat the symbol that says to the rest of the world, we own you, we rule you. And if you get out of line, that's where you're going. And Jesus Christ comes back from the dead to say, actually, I defeated that. And I defeated it for you, for your sins, so that I could do away with your sins and put them away. And now you could come to faith and he defeats hell. He defeats the permanency of death, and he defeats hell, which is where we're all headed apart from the saving work of Christ. So by the new covenant of the blood of Jesus, this servant king who dies and gives his life as a ransom for all, we are saved from his judgment, and Jesus has defeated all of his enemies, death, hell, and the grave. Number three, so how can we know this king? How can we know him? Well, we know him by grace through confession. By grace through confession. If we flip forward to Zechariah 10, or 12, 10, it says, Then I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer. Interesting. I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the house of David and the residents of Jerusalem, and they will look at me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weeps bitterly for him as one weeps for a firstborn. What is going on here? That's what Good Friday is all about. We want you to come back to Good Friday, all of you who can make it. Because what we do when we come to Good Friday is we worship this God who has been incarnate in man, in human flesh, and hung on a cross, and we take some time to look on the one whom we pierced. And we reflect on the fact that it was our sins that put him there. <laughs> it was our sins that put him there. And we, and we mourn over our sin. We mourn over the fact that the Son of God was crucified for the world. And next week, next Sunday, bring a friend. Bring your family. We're going to resurrect his victory over the cross and death. And so he gives us a spirit, the Holy Spirit of grace. And we respond through confession of sin. In John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5, this is the, one of the farewell uh, speeches that Jesus has, and it's a farewell prayer. And after Jesus said this, he, he looked toward heaven and he prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to those you have given him. And now this eternal life, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Think about that statement. Think about that prayer. What is eternal life? What does it mean to have eternal life? It means to receive this grace, this free offer of salvation, this gift of salvation that God offer us not by, offers us, and he offers it not by our works, not by things we have done, not because we have earned it, but he offers it freely to us because he loves us. And this is eternal life, to know God, to have peace with God through his son, Jesus Christ, his only son. And so we receive his grace and we confess our sins 
and we embrace his salvation. So let me ask you today, what's your response to Jesus, the slain and risen king? Maybe it's anger or frustration. It's really hard to give up the steering wheel, isn't it? It's really hard to give up the reins of our own life. It's hard to bow the knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But when we do that, we give up the reins, the control of our lives to the king. Maybe it's confusion or distress. You're saying, I, I, I mean, I know I need to do that. I know I need to confess and bow the knee, but this is causing me anxiety because I don't want to give up control. Or maybe it's godly sorrow for your sins and a spiritual joy for all that he has done and hopeful outlook of what he will do. God is king, returning. Amen? Let's pray. I invite the worship team to come back up. God, we thank you for this word. I'm so amazed that you put so much of this hundreds of years before Jesus comes on the scene. And here we are reading the prophecies of it and, and also the fulfillment of it. And God, we thank you that you came humbly and showed us the way, not only dying for our sins on a cross so that we could be made right with God, but also showing us the way to be human beings toward one another showing us humility and crucifying our pride. Thank you for that. And thank you that you reign and that there is no place on earth that can keep you out because you have given us the authority to make disciples of the nations. And we just ask, Lord, that you would make us effective in that. We ask as a church that you would help us to disciple the world, our neighborhoods, our people here in our community and the nations abroad. And we thank you that you reign over sin, death, and hell and that we have no anxiety about where we're going because you have defeated death and hell forever. We thank you that you have given us this powerful, powerful grace, this expression of goodness and love and mercy. We have it. We just confess all that we are. We confess that we're sinners and we're far from God and we're headed for a Christless eternity apart from the work of the Spirit and the work of Christ. We praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.